Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Mark P. Mills. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to join you. Thank you. Glad to have you here. And uh, I've been looking forward to this call. And I'll start off by giving your background a bit. Actually, we were just saying how long your bio is, the, the longer <laughs> that I got. But I, on your page- It used to be longer because you've done- <laughs> Oh, yours is, it's all a matter. It's all a matter of what you want to tell people. Go ahead, though. Well, on your main page, tech yeah. pundit, author, yeah. speaker, forecaster, yeah. analyst. Yeah, is, that's a pretty short one. And <laughs> exactly. It works pretty well. Yeah. But uh, all right, you're a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and I found you in that capacity. Your writings there. Right. Faculty at uh, Northwestern University in the School of Engineering and Applied Science. Co-founder and strategic partner in a venture fund. Um, other venture funds and CTO, a lot of tech stuff. And you also have, as we've emailed about, you have a, uh, a degree in physics and astrophysics, mm -hmm. and we may indulge ourselves in going into that. Right. Yeah. Well, to be clear, my degree is in physics. I, I was originally planning to become an astrophysicist, but then I got waylaid into solid state physics. And then I quit my graduate degree because I liked working. So I went to work, but that's, and and also, yeah. I'm not on the faculty of Northwestern University. I'm a faculty fellow, which is a wonderful thing because it's an honorific that I do a lecture once a year kind of thing and, mm -hmm. and hang out with very smart people and get to, uh, you know, uh, chat with and learn from really, you know, you know this because the universities tend tend to attract, especially in the sciences and engineering, some very bright people. So it's very nice. Yeah, that's one of the things I miss is the 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 conversations I had with fellow students when we were studying the really complicated like, what does this mean? How what? I and I miss that so much. It's a you know, it's an esoteric thing in some senses because I mean we all like having conversations with people about different things: politics, money, life, sex, whatever. Mm -hmm. But in in science and engineering, you know, those domains, it's a it's the same thing, but it's a different kind of conversation, as you know, and it's no different than any other field. If the counterparty doesn't have domain knowledge of some kind, it's very hard to have the conversation. So like you, I miss having those conversations because you don't have them you know, typically in day-to-day -day life. I mean, in my social environment, I'm the only physicist. Um, I mean, I don't, that's not true. One of my best friends in Washington, D.C. area is an astrophysicist. He mm -hmm. worked at Goddard for years. He's retired now. And we get together for breakfast and we talk about dweeby stuff and the speed of light and work he does on, on infrared telescopes. And it's really a lot of fun. And uh, he, he and I are both skeptics about speed of light uh, as invariant in the universe. But that's a whole separate, <laughs> a whole separate uh, uh, domain of uh, future physics. Well, one of, one of the great things about that is, I mean, you can talk all you want and then ultimately an experiment will you can, I mean, yeah. As an experimentalist, our goal was like, yeah. They think that theory is so great. Let's let's blow yeah. on it. Yeah, but some experiments are very hard to perform um, because they have to wait till they have the ins instruments to perform yeah. the experiments. And this is the kind of thing he and I talk about. What what kind of instrument would you need? What kind of accuracy? I mean, look at the detection of gravity waves. That yeah, that okay. couldn't have been done until one could build uh, an instrument of that of that scale and class. I mean, you're talking about detecting motion at the uh, you know, at the fraction of the diameter of a, of an atom, this is this is across a distance of yeah kilometers. I mean, this is an astonishing piece of instrument. And in fact, my book, some of what I write about in my book, one of my sections of my book, is something that people fail to understand: is the role of instruments of measurement 
over history, both in advancing engineering and, and therefore society, but also in advancing science. The symbiotic relationship between measurement and science is obvious once you state it. You as a scientist know this, but mm-hmm. when you study and think about it and from that through that lens, it's a very, no pun intended, but it's a very different mm-hmm. uh, piece. I mean, the classic example is Sir Bernard Lovell who thought, you know, Mars had canals because the instrument's resolution couldn't, you couldn't tell, but he was sure they looked like canals. He drew canals and hence the War of the Worlds and all kinds of concoctions of ideas about Mars because the instruments were wrong in terms of their resolution. That's what they wanted you to think. <laughs> wow. Yes, they changed. They hid the canals once we got better instruments. I know. <laughs> I bet you're a fan of, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Burke, uh, The Day the Universe Changed and Connections. Um, yeah, and, yeah. It, it, this kind of this the it's a fa- it's fascinating fascinating stuff. But anyway, I I don't mean to interrupt your your introduction. I was only clarifying the fact that uh, I'm jealous that you are an astrophysicist or were, but I was going to become one, and I now I now follow the field as a dilettante. <laughs> well, I follow it as a dilettante too now. In yeah. so I I uh, I was going to do high energy particle physics, and I was at Fermilab. That's fun. It took a big hit because the superconducting super collider got canceled when I was in graduate school. That was sad. That was sad, and. So then I was doing particle physics, but there just happened to be this really great, uh, my next advisor had proposed and, and became lead on um, a spectrometer on an on a X-ray observational satellite. And it was such a great experiment. And then the last two years of my PhD and my first two years were overlapped with the, my invention and patent and writing the business model, business plan and, and uh, sneaking over to the business school without telling my advisor because I didn't want him to know to take classes in entrepreneurship. And exactly. yeah, so I left with this really weird thing. When you work on a satellite, you get the, the deal is you work on it, then you get a year's worth of data first. Like you get access before everyone else does. Yeah. So I worked all the way up to launch and then left and some, I, some other graduate student got my data. Like, <laughs> great for them. But yeah. uh, so I left and, and never looked back. I mean, I, I'm glad I took the route that I did. And I think today our environmental situation is pretty serious and people with a science background, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, able to understand the science and speak about it passionately, but also dispassionately, knowledgeably. Uh, but also, I mean, then I went back to business school and got trained in, in leadership, among other things. And I think that's, that combination is, uh, yeah. is missing and I think very valuable. That's missing in a lot of places. People who don't understand, especially policymakers who don't understand how businesses function, um, implement policies. And of course, the pundits who promote policies who don't understand how businesses function, how markets function, um, can cause a lot of, a lot of havoc. And, uh, I, I didn't do B school, but I did the equivalent of it through the uh, school of hard knocks. I, when I got involved in a venture fund that I helped co-found. The previous one, I didn't have any experience in that space at all, and, and experience in the investing world. And so I learned a lot from my colleagues that I co-founded it with. It was very fortunate, and did a lot of a lot of kinds of transactions, uh, every kind of business transaction you can imagine, from distressed assets to you know, you know pure venture deals and equity deals. And then um, you know, I helped take a company public as the founding chairman and CTO. It was an incredible experience as a business matter, mm. and the. Uh, you know, I've got it. You know, I've raised money. I've, you know, I've uh, been on the. I'm on both sides of the table of money raising. You know, reviewing deals when they come in, hundreds of them. 
and I'm pitching other people on, on things that, that I've done for myself and, you know, for a colleague. So it's uh, without understanding how business functions, because business business has been part of society since before recorded history. Uh, it's pretty important. And an awful lot of scientists and policymakers and, <laughs> and, uh, and politicians don't. But, you know, it's not it's learnable. It's like a lot of skills. You can we can learn it. Yeah, and it's uh, every now and then, yeah, like I, when I teach leadership at NYU, sometimes it's undergrads, sometimes it's MBAs, sometimes it's it's adults. And the the border I usually put on is if you've had to fire someone or not, it's a pretty big difference in life. Yeah, no, I, oh man, I can't. I, so I ran a battery factory for a while, lithium battery factory, the first the first large format lithium iron phosphate battery factory in the United States. In fact, there, I don't think there is one now. Chinese do this technology. We licensed Chinese technology, by the way, mm-hmm. because they did more work on this area and had over the last decade. But uh, just for reasons that are irrelevant to our conversation, we need the factory. It's going to close, right? We're going to lay off hundred people. Mm-hmm. It's a small factory, but but the running anything that involves laying people off, I've done it in my own smaller businesses where we employ, you know, employ ten people. But it it's very sobering. I mean, uh, you don't. You, you don't want to fire people. Uh, yeah. You just don't. And you don't want to think people are lying to you, for example. Uh, and you find out if you manage people that sometimes people lie. Uh, and if they don't lie about material things, you can let it slide. But if it's consequential, you can't. And it's anyway, it's it's like it's a bizarre combination of being a parent uh, when you're a leader mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way and also being a mentor, as you know, and also being a colleague. I mean, it's a very good leaders are a magical thing. I mean, one of the most important lessons I learned about doing venture deals is the correlation between success and failure, in my experience, is utterly dominated by the leader, the leadership team. Even though people say that, they don't op, they don't they don't invest on that basis. It's easy to get seduced by the technology. Mm-hmm. And you know, the old adage that a really great leader with an average product can do better than a better product with a, with a lousy leader mm-hmm. is obvious when you state it. Um, it's almost always the case, but you know, it's fight judging who a good leader is when you're an investor is hard and be developing people, people who are leaders is a lot of work. So I'm glad you're doing that. It's an important thing. I hope I'm doing a good job. <laughs> you probably are. I bet you are. <laughs> and we, we've touched on it with the batteries. It touches on what, what brought me to you and the articles that I read. So I think that there are going to be some places where we agree strongly and in particular <laughs> against a lot of mainstream views. Yeah. And I anticipate there are some places where we'll disagree. And if I if I'm open, I, I secretly hope that our conversation may evolve into an ongoing series of conversations because yeah. I, I I don't know how this will sound. First of all, I think a lot of people will think someone from like why would someone from a, a sustainability podcast bring in someone from the Manhattan Institute who's got videos <laughs> on Prager U that isn't that backward? But I focus on sustainability leadership, which is to me about people. Yeah. And what we do in our culture and beliefs and, and role models and and uh, and that means talking to everyone. Yeah. And I wonder if this would. I, I wonder how this will sound to you. When I was reading your pieces, so um, there. Are a, let me get the titles out. Uh, mine. Well, stuff on, on green energy, a reality right. check. Right. Uh, the new economy, an exercise in magical thinking, the hard math of minerals, forty-one inconvenient truths about the new energy economy, and I. 
I mean, at one point, if you go far enough back, I thought fusion will do everything. Fusion can solve everything. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, okay, all we got to do is more funding into fusion. That'll, that'll problem solve. And gradually that's, I mean, that's like a decade ago or more. And then over the years, I started getting really big on, on renewables. Yeah. And now I have to say so-called renewables, yeah. solar and wind in particular. Yeah. And the more I learn about them, and and people who know me, I don't know if you've if you've checked in on what I've been doing lately, but I've been um, here in Manhattan, living off the grid for a couple months. Sure. Well, you think you are, but that's a conversation we can have. Yeah, I have several cheats, and I rely on society. You have more cheats than you. This is the problem with supply chains, ecosystems, and well, how the world operates. People have more cheats than they realize uh, because they don't understand how systems work. I don't mean you personally, but uh, there is no such thing as. Well, there is. You could live off grid by moving to Africa, you know, and and using a primitive tools and not using any steel or aluminum, not using any electronics. Using, you know, this is. But getting off the utility electric grid is it's not that hard, as long as because you're using other invisible grids. But that's that's okay. But no, you're you're. I think where you're going is, and, and I would say the same thing. You know, frequently, I. In, in the work that I do, I mean, what I'm, inter- what I'm interested in, and I've always been interested in, is how things work. That's why I like physics. So I like how, the, you know, what's why astrophysics was interesting. You know, how, how does a star work? How do things happen? This was true why I got involved in engineering, even though I, I couldn't get a job as a physicist. So I got a job working in semiconductors, designing processes to make microprocessors in the early days of that industry. Utterly fascinating. I mean, the physics and engineering of that are beyond fascinating. And uh, I got involved in nuclear energy early in my career as well. In the mining industry, I worked for a Canadian mining company and refiner. Mm-hmm. And I was at the accident at Three Mile Island. And then I spent the next six years of my career defending the virtues of nuclear energy because people were saying astonishingly silly things uh, and frightening people, things that were just demonstrably not true about you know radiation and nuclear energy. So, but the general thread is how does stuff work? Because if you don't understand how stuff works, then what people think is going to happen either can't happen or won't happen the way they expected, which is why I do papers, uh, reality check. You know, it's why I've written about how we make batteries. And then once you know how you make batteries, you discover something that Volvo and Volkswagen are the only two automakers that are doing the work to publicly admit it in a formal form because they have studies published at their websites is that the, it's not a zero emissions vehicle, first of all, by any mm-hmm. means. And, and, and that has nothing to do with how you charge a battery. It's how you make the batteries. You're just moving the emissions somewhere else. And the magnitude of the emissions associated with making the batteries is sufficient that they wipe out a majority of the so-called savings from not burning gasoline. In fact, I think that will wipe them all out in my research. But whether that's true or not, is, is there's a lot of variables. But in terms of where we are today, the net reduction is very small, maybe 20% reduction in CO2 emissions. So th- this is a very different conversation with people who say, well, you're, you know, your zero emissions Tesla isn't zero. And I'm not talking about the power plants to charge it. I'm talking about the infrastructure to build it. And in fact, it maybe, maybe saves 20%. And the way most people drive Teslas, by the way, it doesn't save anything because most people don't drive Teslas the same distance annually as they drive their gasoline vehicles because they're second cars. So that dissection gets people labeled, as you know, and the and issues that are politically charged. And of course, this issue is politically charged now for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. 
then you get these labels. So you find organizations like Prager are interested in publishing the and publicizing information that are factual. But then they, then you have people say, well, you know, anything on Prager, you, you're clearly right wing. Okay, well, I worked for Ronald Reagan. It means by definition I, I'm right of center because you can't work for a president like that and not, you know, mm -hmm. not get imprinted in some fashion. But I came out of Canada. So, you know, a conservative in Canada is more closely aligned with a conservative Democrat. I mean, there, there's no, there's essentially no right wing parties in Canada. There's no equivalent to the Republican Party of Canada. I mean, the, the Conservative Party of Canada is like the old um, middle of the road Democrat Party of the United States. I mean, that's mm -hmm. sort of where it lines in the political pantheon. But these labels happen. I'm very familiar with them. And I was exposed to it when I first came to the United States debating nuclear energy uh, in the public space on TV, radio, universities. You know, it was uh, really emotionally charged. People were really wound up about nuclear power, you know, massive protests. I'm sure you can. I mean, if you look online at the old videos of people in front of nuclear plants chaining themselves to fences, and I mean, it was epic stuff. It was like the Vietnam War protest level protests going on over nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm familiar with the labeling. So anyway, that's my my, my preemptive sort of, uh, I get I get where you, you, you would have an audience would wonder, why are you talking to somebody like that? Well, <laughs> and and I want to combine it with, when I say, so they're like, what are you doing? And I, I say, well, I got these solar panels. And I, no matter how much I say, solar panels are not green. They're not renewable. That's, well, that's, well, well, that's right. Because you know, you know, entropy exists. All machines wear out. So the renewable, the renewable label is irrelevant. It's the machine that wears out. That's what matters. The solar panels wear out. And they have and, to be built from something. And they had to be built from something is a big thing. I mean, that's what, so I'd come across a few things here and there that were, that were research into the kinds of numbers that you went into and, and not yes. just the numbers, but also the different approaches. Right. Which maybe is, I don't, maybe this is oversimplifying it too much, but you've, you've said a couple of times or you've quoted others. Of, it's like switching fuel intensive to materials intensive. Right. And for no, not a whole lot of net gain if there is any. Correct. And then, and then of course the systemic effects where people are like, Oh, well, this is, no problem. So now I'll just use more of it. Right. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, they, you, have, you have two, the human psychology factor is, is important. Mm -hmm. So efficiency, it's famously mislabeled as having a rebound effect or the so-called rebound effect. Uh, and this was the, so, the, you know, the Jevons paradox, which he knew was not a paradox, the economist in the 19th century who observed that making coal Making coal mining more efficient led to more coal, mm -hmm. coal consumption, not less. And that's because in economics 101, that means it's cheaper to use. So people use more of it. But then you also have the psychological factor, just different than making things that are important cheap. People want more of it. Uh, if they feel better about it, they may use more of it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and even if what they're feeling better about isn't real, it's a perception. But the, um, the supply chain for solar is particularly interesting. And this whole this whole issue of following supply chains, how we get the things that make what we use in society possible, is e extraordinarily important. That's what Europe is discovering right now. They're they're discovering in a harsh way the realities of supply chains and what it takes to build supply chains at society scales that will operate and operate in the face of stress. And the stress can be weather, or natural disasters, or wars. I mean, this is, stress has always happened. Mm -hmm. And you design systems knowing that the stress is over many, multi decades are guaranteed to occur, but they're difficult to predict when they will occur. 
but the the magnitudes of the stresses will occur. So that has impacts on what you build, and then you and then then you sort of follow that supply chain up. So these boundary questions about what what do I follow, what's real, they're important when you do the research. So you have to, people have to be honest about their boundary conditions, what they're you know how they're analyzing things. But very little of the public discussion of renewable energy, very little. Some I'm not talking about the academic world, but the public policy world, mm-hmm. where all this animation is. Very little of it has any awareness of what's really going on behind the scenes in the supply chains to, to make solar panels, for example. And you yeah. doubtless know, because you looked into it, that roughly 80% of all solar modules, the polysilicon solar modules, are made in China. That's where they make them. And they make them there because they chose to make them there, but they're very energy intensive to make. And mm-hmm. so they've chosen to build coal-fired grids, which produce cheap electricity. Two-thirds of the electricity is coal-fired. So you could say, and it would be a rhetorical flourish, but true, that a solar panel, when you install it, has already not only a, a carbon debt, but it's essentially conversion of coal into electricity, mm-hmm. just more indirectly than burning it. But you've had to use a lot of coal to bring that solar panel. And similarly, the aluminum, because solar panels use a lot of aluminum because they, they need to be lightweighted. That too, right? A lot of that's made in China on their coal-fired grids. Uh, most of it is not made in uh, countries that use a lot of nuclear power or hydropower, with the exception of you know Iceland. But uh, but those are the kind of things that I that I find interesting, but also important because people are deluding themselves in some cases about the outcomes, and that's I think that's consequential. It's important to understand intellectually, but what worries me is the morality of it. I, I consider it, um, you know, is the naivete is one thing. But once you know the facts are available and you ignore them, then there's a moral component. And that that's, you know, personally, I find offensive when people ignore. They could they can be aware of it and say they don't care. You're allowed to do that. But if you know the facts exist and you ignore them, mm-hmm. it's, this is a different that's a very different uh, decision that people are making. That's why I can't stop reading about this stuff. I, it's so tempting. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> it's so tempting for a lot. Of, yeah. And I appreciate it. Well, actually. I got to tell you something, reading your stuff. I, I'm curious now talking to you, maybe it'll be, maybe you'll respond differently than I expected. <laughs> reading your stuff gave me the same feeling of this is how, this is research that needed to be done that is critical for us to understand what we're, what we're doing. And I wish I did it, but I'm so glad someone did it because <laughs> it's, I can't imagine how much time you spent doing the research. And there's one other book that gave me that feeling and that was Limits to Growth. You know, it's funny. I, I read Lemons to Growth too, the club mm-hmm. from the Club of Rome. Yeah. And I had the exact same reaction to you. Uh, my initial reaction was, boy, this is cool. A lot of work. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I want to know. I mean, I, because they go behind the scenes at the entire supply ecosystem to allow civilization to run. And the, by Limits to Growth, as you know, they were worried about running out of copper and running out of materials and energy and, and all the collateral externalities, environmental effects and water effects. And the impacts of population and wealth. It's just, it was a magnificent uh, modern exploration into sort of the complexities of civilization. Now, mm-hmm. when I read it at that time, and I, I didn't know, I mean, I've learned a lot more since then, but, but it just felt wrong. The conclusion felt wrong to me. Now, this is just a, a bias I came to. It's just, it felt wrong. I couldn't prove it was wrong, mm-hmm. but it felt wrong. 
I mean, basically, Limits of Growth said all kinds of things, which have been since, you know, we're talking about a book in 1973, have since been shown to be wrong. Most of what they forecast didn't happen. But trying to figure out why they were wrong was, in some senses, what launched early on in my career where I ended up. I didn't end up studying those kinds of things as a business when I read The Limits to Growth Mm -hmm. back then. Uh, But I read things like that a lot. Uh, Then for reasons that were planned, I ended up, you know, in a bit sense in a business where I study stuff like that and do my research myself. But and if you didn't read it, so not too many years later, the Institute for, Institute for um, let's see, the IISA in, in Austria, the Institute for uh, Supply Systems Analysis, I think, was a think tank in Austria that did a, a massive version of limits to growth, a two volume study they published, looking at the carrying capacity of Earth. So what they wanted to do was take what limits to growth done and go beyond it, uh-huh. updated. They did this in the in the 90, late 90s. Extraordinary work. And it, it was driven by worried about worries about overpopulation. And what they used as their animating question, trying to answer the question, the hypothetical question, what's the carrying capacity of Earth? Mm-hmm. Not, not based on the technology we use today, but based on the inherent resources in the, in the planet and on the assumptions that we might find more effective ways to use them, right? Mm-hmm. Better technology. Really interesting stuff. So I think that a lot of people look at – a lot of people who want – who just want solar and wind to work, I think they'll look at your stuff and say, well, he just does – he's – He's partisan and wants to poke holes in it (laughs) and therefore won't read it. And Right. That's true. That's absolutely happens all the the time. It's a catastrophe for people to do that. Well, first, it's I'll I'll tell you, I I try very hard not to do the inverse. And 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 it's an act of will, by the way, as you might imagine, because I'll see reports or papers that claim that we can eliminate hydrocarbons in all solar and wind future. Or we'll see, you know, electric cars are going to take over the world. You know, Tesla is going to be worth more than all the car companies in the world forever. Mm-hmm. And and you'll see serious studies. And what I try to do, and I do, and I do this as a matter of practice, I'll, I'll read the study. I'll read the paper. I want to read it. Because what, what, what I'm obsessed by, and this is maybe because you may be like I am, when you're trained in science, what you want to be obsessed by is that you've made a mistake. You've made a yeah. category error. You've missed something. You've made an arithmetical error. I mean, I'm making arithmetical errors all the time. I'm obsessed with trying to make sure I don't make a stupid arithmetical error, for goodness mm-hmm. sake, because, you know, drop a zero, move the decimal point, all these things that, you know, humans do. But you worry that that you've done that on something that you've has led you to a conclusion. And the best way to protect yourself against that is to read people who don't agree with you. Yes. Yeah. And then, and I will confess this, I'll start reading another study that that says something that I believe is, that the conclusion is wrong. And as I read the study, what I'm looking for are signs that they have a different insight or different data. So that's what I do first. So I'll skim it. Do they have something, are they saying something different than 20 people said before them? Mm -hmm. Are they saying exactly the same thing with slightly different words? But no new data, same primary sources. And I would tell you 90% of the time, what I find is this no new data, same primary sources. So, because I always go back to the primary sources that people are citing. Mm-hmm. And if they don't cite them, then I try to find them, you know, use the magic Google machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will frequently find, and I don't mean this like every day, but one out of 10 times, read a paper that is a counterposition to something I've written or said or thought I've understood. 
and it will have a nuance, you know, that I missed. Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, fascinating. I mean, this, this is, those are gems when you find that. And then what you want to find out, it doesn't change my conclusion. Not that, that I missed, I missed a, a gem. If the gem is a good example would be with solar energy. And there's two parts of solar, which is, are complicated. One is it's only useful if you can store it. Mm-hmm. Um, this mythology that it's always sunny somewhere is silly. It's not true. It's not always sunny somewhere on earth. It's just in a, in a useful way. So you can't build grids that are all solar for the planet. You know, you just this, this are just that's science fiction. So you have to have so the battery discussion is a separate one, but the efficiency of the solar panel matters, right? The underlying materials you use, the efficacy of the conversion process, how you can package it. So when you see these stories about breakthrough in solar, right? Breakthrough. New new technology uh, uses a material that's a fraction of the price of silicon. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you go find a study, you read it, and you find, yeah, they did find them. You know, perovskites are a good example of a really important new discovery in the solar photovoltaic space. And I think they'll be meaningful. But then as you dig into it, it doesn't change the conclusion, right? The overarching macro conclusion is it doesn't make, you can't change the number of photons arriving at the surface of the earth. You just can't. About the challenges of technology. And the reason I'm, you know, my little experiment of going off grid is the experiment wasn't, it's certainly not because I think that my individual contribution is going to make much of a difference. It's one of the big things was, can I do it? Because yeah. when I unplugged, I, I was or disconnected the circuit. Yeah. Oh, with you, I can say open the circuit. I always say disconnected because yeah. I think open, a lot of people might think that it means it connects. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, anybody knows the circuits work. It's open and closed. That's, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> and I thought, how am I going to, I don't think I can make it past two days. Yeah. And so now I'm almost finished my fourth month and that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So one is, um, how did, to the extent I, I am going to try using solar, I've never used it before. Yeah. So I got a 200 watt panel. Yeah. Is that a lot or a little? You know, I know what watts are, but I didn't know practically hands on, is that a lot or a little? And I got a battery that has half a kilowatt hour. Is that a lot or a little? I had no idea. So you could have asked me, I could have told you. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I probably wouldn't have found you otherwise. So, because it's pretty. <laughs> and then, what what problems are going to come up? The battery's broken twice. Yeah, of course. It's a machine. The panel's broken once. Yeah. They've replaced them, but it's at a big pain in the butt. It is. Well, you know, Amazon Amazon has shut down all their uh, roof-mounted solar panels on their warehouses and paused their program really? because of fires on the roof. And the fires are from the inverters. So as you know, solar electricity comes in and it's a DC, mm-hmm. has to be converted by inverters into the AC that your, your, your buildings use. Uh, those inverters and control systems are machines, like they're semiconductors, power devices. If they're not built and installed properly, they can light on fire. It's a lot of energy goes through them, and you get fires. You don't want fires. Um, you know, it, it took us uh, half a century to build an electric grid that doesn't light itself on fire regularly. Mm-hmm. You know, electrical fires are pretty rare in a modern in a modern America. That's that took a lot of decades of hard engineering. So you're re- you're just rediscover you're rediscovering what every utility yeah. engineer discovers about how do you keep machines operating reliably that they work and what's the maintenance cycle would you pay more for more reliable machine and what are your peak energy demands because you can't meet the peak easily if you have a system to design you meet your average you could not do the peaky things right that's a behavioral change but sometimes you have to do peaky things i mean peaky things are how societies operate there's no 
stable, flat operation in nature. Things tend to cycle. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, before this, I thought, I didn't think this always sun somewhere, but stuff like that. I think, well, that's just an engineering thing. Yeah. Until the first three rainy days in a row, I was like, this is serious <laughs> business. Intermittency is not a joke. It's right. I mean, of course, I'm just one person. Uh, it's not, I'm not solving grid level problems, but I was really cavalier about it. And I think everyone is really, most well, I mean, people are. who are pro it are really cavalier about it. And they dismiss people who dismiss it or who, you know, who say it's not so simple as partisan and, and right. it's really serious business. Well, that's, so you and I, on this issue, we, we agree profoundly. It is very serious business. And when, you know, engineers try to build grids, utilities, utilities that try to keep society operating, you know, keep machines on in hospitals and keep the lights on and in, in entertainment, it's all this, it's the same problem. They're very aware. I mean, the one thing that, Engineers, I discovered when I did a lot of work with utilities at those industries, they're very, very aware of their social role. It's a social, moral role that they have to, because it's serious business. Mm -hmm. And Europe discovered the seriousness before the Ukraine war. People probably have forgotten if they don't follow this, but last fall, um, the North Sea had a one week long wind lull. So, you know, these uh, massive uh, lulls in wind occur. We know this in meteorological data over multi-decadal periods, you can have a period where very large regions have no wind for a week, not a day, but for a week, mm -hmm. none, just becomes. It just happens. No one knows. It just happens. And we know how often it happens looking back at meteorological records. It happens dozens of times over, de over decades. And mm -hmm. the, the length of time it lasts ranges from you know, hours in a day to a week, sometimes longer. So you can predict you know, how a lot of things are in nature. You can predict they will happen. It's very difficult to predict when they'll happen, but they will happen with, with some. And so when that happened uh, last fall, because Europe and particularly England had increased their dependence on wind so much, mm -hmm. when that amount of wind power went away, many, gigawatt, many gigawatts just collapsed, the only way you can keep the lights on is they fortunately still had a lot of gas-fired turbines around, right? They haven't decided to go all wind. And so they have to go on the spot market and start buying natural gas immediately to keep the lights on all across Europe. Because if England loses it, they're drawing power from Europe. Europe has to backfill. England's backfilling. And so electric rates went up a thousand percent to boom overnight, mm -hmm. thousand percent. And that lasted for a week. It lasts long enough that it means the average, if you do the math, a thousand percent increase in your bill for a week has a meaningful impact in your annual bill, <laughs> would, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. But it also causes the industries to shut down and businesses to collapse because they can't pay their bills. They just can't afford that. Uh, so what do you do? Well, everybody's saying this gets back to the naivete that's consequential. The people who say that I'm the I'm being negative about their favorite energies. I'm no, I'm not being negative. I'm extremely optimistic, frankly, about next generation wind, and solar, and batteries. This is generation is not good enough. But they talk about building batteries. This doesn't require a degree in physics to figure out how many batteries you need and what it would cost. Mm -hmm. The numbers are astonishing. Yeah. He, yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking not billions, trillions of dollars of batteries. In fact, I just did the number for a piece I just, I just wrote, which uh -huh. people who love wind and solar won't read because they think that what I'm doing is saying that wind and solar is, is bad. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that what Europe has had to do to avoid the collapse of its economy is shut a lot of industries down. Switch a lot of gas-fired boilers to oil because oil is more fungible, easy to get other places. In implement draconian measures, burn more coal, reanimate old coal plants, 
keep nuclear plants from shutting down. I mean, it's all these things they've done. And they've diverted more gas to storage so that if it's a cold winter, there won't be a catastrophe in Europe. All of this has happened because the net shortfall in energy going into the European system is five percentage points of their total energy supply, five percentage points. Mm-hmm. In other words, that's the 20% of their energy that was natural gas, half of us in Russia. You do the arithmetic, and what you get is they lost five percentage points of their energy, and they are in, in economic chaos. You could build batteries to match how much gas they put in storage. Could do that in theory. Mm-hmm. So I, I did the calculation. It's not a hard calculation. It's about $50 trillion of batteries, mm-hmm. which would take all the world's battery factors 400 years to build. So would we use more batteries one day? Sure. But is that a solution to what Europe is facing now? It's prima facie not. It's silly to believe that that's a solution. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is to be honest about what it takes to keep society running at the scales we need to keep it operating, which may, which doesn't mean abandoning the windmills. It means building gas-fired storage and gas turbines as well and building nuclear plants as well. It means you do both. But when I promote that as the honest solution, which is what the world is doing, it's what Europe's doing right now, you get labeled as somehow being uh, anti-wind. I'm not, a, I like, I actually like windmills. I think I've, and I've been to wind farms in China that switch, stretch the horizon. Mm-hmm. I find them awesome. I'm incredible engineering accomplishment, really mm-hmm. amazing machines. Yeah. It, it's, uh, when I had those, now I've gone through a few times of, of no, of, of, of uh, cloudy days. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, one of my cheats that I allowed myself was I can plug in my computer and phone at, NYU. So I can go to the office there and, and just plug in. You borrow somebody else's grid, of course. Yes. Yeah. And naturally. <laughs> well, I mean, well, that's what all of Europe's done. I'm not trying to solve everything. Yeah. I'm just trying to do one thing at a time. Yeah, sure. I get it. And plugging in into an, uh, the current electric grid is so easy and so comfortable. It's like, like when I'm charging the battery off of the, uh, the solar panel, it's showing like 150, 160 watts coming in. When I'm up on the roof and I connect the battery, it's showing like 150, 160 watts. A cloud comes and then it's down to like 10 watts. Yeah. Or, you know, and if I'm if I leave it up there for long enough, I gotta go up and, and like move it because the sun's moving. And then I plug into the wall, it's like 600 watts, boom, the thing's full in, in like a few minutes. Oh, I know, I know. But imagine running a grid, right? Let's say you have not you know, 200 watts of panels, but tens of thousands of watts of panels mm-hmm. across fields. And in the so- clouds coming over, if you look at a graph of the output of a, a solar field, you know, a whole utility scale array of solar panels, um, any given hour or day, a lot of oscillate, a lot of variability in that. Uh, fortunately, the power electronics can handle that these days. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. that you can't handle it. But the other interesting part about the sun is not just the what you would call the uh, minute-to-minute variability from sun and the, the obvious diurnal var- variability, day-night. Mm-hmm. It's a seasonal variability that people don't understand. And of course, there's a lot of good data on this. Again, we, we've collected data on both the sun and the wind for a lot of, a lot of years. And there's, mat- there's a huge seasonal variability, depending where you are geographically, the latitude, on the amount of energy you can get from the sun. The, the incident flux changes pretty dramatically. So if you're trying to run a grid based on an energy source that not only varies minute to minute, but day, night and weekly, but also is massive 
uh, average change on the seasonal. But wind does the same, by the way. Seasonal variability is also a play. But by mm-hmm. factors of as much as 50%, you get half as much uh, energy on the off-season as you do on the peak season. So if you need the same amount of energy to live in society, obviously you have to size the system to accommodate that, which has a cost, an environmental cost. It has an economic cost, a footprint cost. But th- these things don't make any difference when, you know, solar power is at 1% of all energy, let's say, or a, few, a fraction of percent. But you start doing this for most operations, and it becomes consequential. It makes a difference. So where this leads me is, well, what we haven't talked about, how about fossil fuel pollution? How does, it, how does that look to you? Because I, I feel like a lot of people look at, <laughs> yeah. like, to me, one of my big takeaways from limits to growth was that it's not that we're going to, I mean, it's not the running out that's the issue. It's the, I mean, pollution and then what we have to do to mitigate that. Right. And that doesn't sound very tenable to me either. Well, it's the capacity of the ecosystem to withstand the insults from humans and their, with their activities, right? It's, uh, and we, we, know, we know we've overstressed ecosystems because we've done it, right? We've polluted rivers and destroyed ecosystems, stripped forests. So humans have been doing things like that for thousands of years. So we actually know that humanity is capable of damaging or destroying ecosystems, not just killing you know, animals. You know, it's fundamentally changing local ecosystems. So the first thing is, the, the reason I, I don't write about the fact that when you burn hydrocarbons, you, you emit pollutants, is that this is obvious. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about what my view on that is in a minute, but it's obvious. What's not obvious to people, which is why I write about it, and I write about it because they are saying things that are naive and profoundly dangerous, that there's somehow it's, it's sustainable to do what we're doing with wind, solar, and batteries, that it's environmentally superior. It's not superior, it's different. Yeah. And in some cases, it's not even that different because the oil that's needed and the coal and gas that are needed to build wind, solar, and batteries are part of the same system. You don't avoid using oil. In fact, Again, when I do these, this research, I you discover fascinating things. And if I, and if I find that my facts are wrong, then I, I want to change them. And what people don't dispute are the facts. They don't like the conclusions, right? Mm-hmm. So when I tell somebody that the world's mining industry uses roughly as much oil as world aviation and that the so-called sustainable path being proposed will lead to the largest increase in global mining in the history of humanity, mm-hmm. that will increase oil use because there's no path to not using oil and gas and coal in the mining sector. There's just no path. There's no, there's, no, there's no physical chemistry. There's no machines that can eliminate the use of hydrocarbons in that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the price, price we'll pay for not burning natural gas in turbines or oil in the car, gasoline in the car, will be a lot more oil and gas used elsewhere. So you, if you're being honest, you'd want to calculate what that trade is. Mm-hmm. In some cases, the trade's worth making because the location of the pollution matters. Dense urban cores... Ideally, you emit nothing, not less, but zero, ideally, because we're so congested, which is why electric cars make a lot of sense, if you like. And that's why we have electric trains and tunnels instead of combustion trains and tunnels. Uh-huh. You don't want to kill people with, with carbon monoxide, right? Monoxide, not dioxide. So that's, that's sort of the starting point. But then to answer the question about what do I think about the fact that hyd- all things, hydrocarbons, all everything has an impact on the environment, our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So my research is directed at, ask, at trying to answer the question, what is the way to minimize that impact? What is the near-term path, the most likely an affordable path, because money matters in societies. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody's rich. Uh, what is the 
path to the what's the best path to minim, path to minimization, and if that's not the path I'd like, then what's the science I need to find to get a different path? What do I what do I have to discover to get a different path? Uh-huh. Because pretending that there's a perfect solution is pretty on naive. So if I were to say to somebody, we want to reduce oil use, we want to use oil combustion, and if I told you that I could get larger reduction in oil use and a larger reduction in carbon dioxide emissions, therefore, by subsidizing more thermodynamically efficient internal combustion engines than subsidizing electric cars, mm-hmm. why wouldn't we do that? But no one's proposing to do that. That's not it's not on anybody's proposal list because it's implicitly supporting hydrocarbons. But if the goal is to reduce the pollution and the side effects of hydrocarbons, it's easy to demonstrate that I can get much more bang for the buck much faster and sooner by chasing thermodynamically more efficient engines, which already exist. These don't have to be invented. They already Mm -hmm. exist. The reason they're not used is they they do cost a little more than the engines that most people buy. So you could say, well, governments can just mandate that. Well, yeah, of course they can. Governments can mandate anything they want. But so then I would just ask again the same question. Oh, if you're going to mandate something, why mandate the banning of internal combustion engines in California, which won't work and won't happen. But I'll just mm-hmm. put this, why mandate that? If you're going to mandate something, mandate uh, the use of the most thermodynamically efficient engine available. You could do that. I'm not a fan of mandates in either case, by the way, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. But in politics, mandates happen. Because sometimes sometimes you have to mandate something and it happens. I mean, this is, this is the, the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the controls of a society are always important. But anyway, so you get my point. So I, it's not an either or. This is, this is the fiction that it's not either wind or solar, and it's not no hydrocarbons. And what do I think about hydrocarbon pollution? Of course, if you burn hydrocarbons indiscriminately, you cause true pollution. Mm-hmm. The sort of the physical chemistry question and the physics questions are, can I reduce it? You can never get to zero. Really. Although... You can actually make a zero emissions combustion engine pretty close. You can pre- get pretty close to matching, get the zero emissions by, you know, recirculating and scrubbing the exhaust gases and chemically capturing uh, all the gases and converting them into solids. So you just have a, you know, you can collect the solids and manage them in a way that doesn't result in air pollution. But you still have, in the physics of the universe we live in, if you do something, you get waste. Mm-hmm. Waste is locked into the physics of the universe we live in. You can't have a transaction without waste. There's no zero waste. There's no zero waste future. Is that in fact when Peter, my buddy, and I wrote a book called The Bottomless Well some years ago, in the subtitle we have uh the, the line the virtue of waste. And by that, what we meant was the kind of transactions we care about in society, essentially stripping entropy out of systems. Everything that we try to do is to strip entropy, to get rid of disorder always involves using energy and materials, and that always involves waste. But the progress of society is to, is always towards reducing entropy. Mm-hmm. That's what life is about. That's what society is about. And the only way you can get there is by making these transactions that involve waste. So ipso facto, the virtue of the pursuits we want in society that are important to us, the evidence that we're doing something virtuous is that there's waste. So this sounds like a like a rapacious wish that we're going to destroy the planet. No, it's a recognition of the world we live in. And and that's that's sort of been my fight. But people don't want to hear that on average. They just they they don't want to have the argument or the debate about those facts and what to do 
about those realities in ways that are affordable. Again, I keep coming back to affordable because you're, you start out with a comment on fusion. You know, as you well know, we know fusion exists. <laughs> it's the star. Mm. Or yeah. But we also know that if we're honest about it, we read the real reports. We're not even close to to net cycle break even. We've got great records in sustaining very high temperatures, you know, 100 million degrees for 30 seconds or something. Incredible. But the energetic, no one has demonstrated a sustainable break even net energy production and fusion. It hasn't happened. No, there's no machine doing that. Uh, when we get to that, mm-hmm. then we'll have the equivalent, you know, of the, the first the first fission reactor, right, at Stag Field in 1939. Well, th- you know, that'll happen one day, but we're there. And I don't know if we'll be there in 10 years or 100 years. It's, uh, you know, fusion Fusion looks like it's still very hard. Yes. And there's all <laughs> sorts of other systemic effects as well there. Oh, a lot. A lot. Are you familiar with the Do the Math blog by Tom Murphy? No, that sounds like fun. I like that. Oh, man. I think you'll like, I would love to get your thoughts on it too. Uh, I'll make note to self. <laughs> So it's do the math. He, yeah. I think he just retired from uh, UC San Diego. Uh, he's also a physicist and went to Caltech. I don't know if you knew Feynman. <laughs> and he, yeah, he looks at, he, I mean, he, he does what we're talking about. Yeah. And from a physics perspective, like what works, what doesn't work, what are the consequences of this? What are the consequences of that? And so much of it is, and, and he's correct to call do the math because it's an easier word, but it's really not math. It's arithmetic. Yeah. Most of what's consequential is just arithmetic. I mean, knowing the scale of things and how many people need how much stuff. And, you know, Vaclav Schmil, who's um, now retired at University of Manitoba Mm -hmm. in Canada, my homeland, has written more books on energy than any human being. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, And Vaclav's latest book, of course, is he sort of he sort of maps the same direction that I map in my writing. And I gave him a lot of credit when I often find he's discovered or say things that are really profoundly insightful. He's a very, very smart guy. And, and he's he's in the camp that thinks that society first has to recognize these physics realities to do the math. But he's in the camp that the solution to the problems is that people have to change their behaviors. To sort of he's in your in your zeitgeist that mm-hmm. it's if enough people change their personal behaviors and not one plucky from the grid, size of house, the temperature they have, the kind of food they eat. Uh, where they choose to go on vacation, how often, the, the, the whole penumbra of things, how they entertain themselves, mm-hmm. all have these enormous uh, energy and material consequences. And he thinks that people need to do less. I mean, he personally practices that lifestyle. He does a lot less than a lot of other people, lives in a far, far, smaller, far smaller house than he could, could certainly afford far more, mm-hmm. super insulated. I mean, he's, he practices what he preaches. He's also a realist. I, w- I would call him a curmudgeon to his face because he's a bit of a curmudgeon. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he thinks that people are irredeemable. They won't live the way he wants to live and thinks they should. But that's that's a different that's not a physics problem. That's an evangelization issue. That's a different thing. And and, and I and my view on that is okay, I don't have any objection to people evangelizing me. They they're, they're perfectly willing to do it. I just don't like when they dictate how I can live. If they want to mm-hmm. persuade me to live differently, that's fine. But society history doesn't do well with you know approaches that that could go from you know persuasion to 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 diktats. But it happens, right? It's a bit of what's going on. That's what California is doing. Coming back to California, the diktat that we're going to ban 
the sale of internal combustion engines. This is profoundly uh, destructive to uh, uh, middle income and lower income people in California. Mm-hmm. It's a horrific decision, and it will it will have no beneficial effect on the global environment. But it probably won't reduce CO two emissions at all. I mean that that whole ecosystem where it's now going. And my data on this, by the way, is not coming just from my the research I do is, as you know, a lot of research is you, you go to primary sources where they're doing the, the specific research. So if you want to know how much the emissions are from an electric car, you'd want to know from, you know, a technical journal, a science journal, mm-hmm. what the ore grades are for copper, for example, mm-hmm. how much copper is in the rock, what are the trend lines, how much energy does it take to get the copper out of the rock? These are all knowable things and they're not political things and they're not uh, questions that are really susceptible to, you know, political bias in a sense. I mean, you can not like the, the facts, but the fact is what it is. You need mm-hmm. to spend tons of rock. You have to grind it up. You have to use sulfuric acid and dissolve things. <laughs> All these things. How do you make sulfuric acid? Where does that come from? And that's the kind of stuff Bakalov does, the kind of stuff I try to do. But I try to distill it into, you know, a form that people who aren't technical can understand. Mm-hmm. But if you're not careful, it leads itself to people making assumptions that you're simply gassing away as an opponent and an ideologue as opposed to trying to explain something in English. Yeah, so I'm I'm going to uh, endorse, like, I'll have the links to your papers, the ones that I read the titles of. And really, you really do, I mean, some of them are long and comprehensive, but one of them is, like, summarizes the one of, like, 40 points of, yeah. and I mean, if that one's too short, you can go to the other ones because <laughs> exactly. it goes into more depth. <laughs> exactly. And so I didn't realize, I, I was wondering, because if I understand you right, the reason you're presenting the issues with uh, solar and wind and not about fossil fuels is that the solar and wind stuff isn't being reported on so that right. you don't want to just repeat what's already out there. Right. I, I mean, look, I, it's, not, it's no mystery to people what the side effects of are from hydrocarbons principally because we've been doing it for a century and set coal aside for two centuries. But for let's just do the, the oil and gas era because that's what people are mostly wrapped around the axle bottle, although coal is important because we've been doing coal stuff for two centuries. So we have a lot of data, a lot of information, a lot of regulations around the externalities and side effects of hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting there is not that there aren't side effects, is what are the technologies that are that are coming along that will mitigate them even more than we've already mitigated them. And there's some very, I think, some very important technologies there that don't get covered. So I write about that mm-hmm. because that's news, right? It's not news that if you burn oil that has sulfur in it, that you get uh, sulfur, sulfur dioxide as a, you know, you get a pollutant that you don't want, nitrogen oxides. What's, what's newsworthy is whether or not I can get rid of the nitrogen oxides inexpensively and still burn the fuel, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the solar wind stuff is new in this sense. Society has not, in modern times, provided any significant amount of energy from windmills and solar panels. It just hasn't. We have to go back to the Middle Ages where the windmills were, uh, the, you know, the grist mills were all wind powered. And there were mm-hmm. thousands of windmills across Europe at that time. And hydro water. And water mills. The, water mills, yeah. Water mills and wind. But there were more windmills than water mills, by the way, by far. Because there were more, there's more wind than there are streams. If you could think about, so they were, they once they discovered the uh, gearing and the camshaft. The big revolution then was the camshaft that allowed you to convert rotary motion into pounding motion, 
Mm-hmm. And the pounding motion is what you use to, you know, pound grain and pound uh, uh, cloth to, to flock the cloth and make it soft. Anyway, I digress. That's that was then. But now we're now we're building a lot of stuff. I mean, we're we're you know making millions of cars with batteries that each weigh a half a ton yeah. to replace 80 pounds of gasoline. Okay. Half a ton's pretty big. Uh, where'd the stuff come from? And then, so I started digging into it and I came up with the number. The first time I did this number was for the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. I said, well, that one ton battery that the Senate was happy to promote, you know, it's a nice, is about uh, 250 tons of rock have to be mined to make that half, sort of half ton battery. Mm-hmm. So it's a thousand pound battery, 500,000 pounds of mining per car. Uh, you don't mine 500,000 pounds of stuff to make a regular car. What you do, what you do is different. What you do is you deliver oil and refine it, which which weighs something as well. But this is back to a really important phenomenology change. I'm going from liquids and gases predominantly, which are easy to move, inexpensive to move, easy to contain, easy to store, to solids, which are hard to move, hard mm-hmm. hard to store, hard to convert. I mean, it's a battery is largely a solid device. Mm-hmm. These are things that people haven't focused on. So it's a long way of saying the reason I'm writing about it is because it's ignored and ignoring it has consequences that are environmental, economic, social. And the consequences can't, shouldn't be ignored because first they will hurt us and they, and they will soon hurt us, but I mean economically and socially, but they will hurt, they're hurting other people. There, the countries in which the mining is done, we don't do the mining in America or Europe. We don't like mines anymore. We've stopped permitting them. And this administration has canceled three mine permits in the last eight months. We need a lot more mining done. Where is that mining going to be done? I mean, it's a reasonable question to ask. Well, if you're going to need more nickel and more copper and more aluminum, where are you going to dig it up? Okay, well, Africa, Asia, South America. Fragile economies, fragile democracies, fragile ecosystems. Will they follow our environmental regulations? I, I would say fat chance. Yeah, or labor regulation. Yeah. I mean, you're yeah, talking child about child labor. labor. Yeah. Oh, sure. So what's the solution to that? Well, mine it here. I mean, that, that's one of my proposals. <laughs> Let's mine here. But no one wants to do that. So then don't use as much copper, for example. Well, that would mean stick with the internal combustion engine and drill, drill for oil. But I mean, those are, or don't drive. I mean, and there are people, as you know, who honestly propose and they're serious about it. And I, I, I accept their seriousness. I just disagree with their, their uh, moral philosophy that we should, we should limit the number of cars people are allowed to own and drive and how often they can drive. Okay. But that's a, that's a different debate, but it's an honest debate to say the, the solution is to limit how often you can fly or lift, limit how many cars you can own. That's a political, moral, social debate, but it's one that, sort of capitulates to the physical reality of the world we live in. The magic stuff. That's why I call it magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Not because uh, I'm denigrating people's idea that we should use more solar panels. We should. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, say, I say to somebody that we should have more solar in the world. We will have more solar in the world. There will be more electric cars. And that's a good thing. But mandating them is not a good thing. And thinking they're going to replace everything else won't happen. It's magical thinking. That's That was sort of the... And to think that you can invent a new technology... The response I hear is you as a scientist and inventor know what I always hear is, well, they'll they'll, they'll make it better. They'll invent a better chemistry because you read it every day. There's a new story. Mm -hmm. Breakthrough in battery chemistry. It probably is a breakthrough in physical chemistry. Mm -hmm. But the time from the breakthrough to a product in the real world, 
at scale is decades, not not months or years. I mean, the, the best example of that is lithium chemistry. An incredible epiphany, you know, 1975 thereabouts, Exxon Research Center, Whittingham figures out you can really use lithium to make a battery. Gets a Nobel Prize along with two other, you know, two other guys, as you know. But the time from that discovery to the first commercial lithium battery, that's pretty close to 20 years. And the time from that discovery to the first electric car that was consequential, the Tesla, 15 more years. And now we're 15 years after that. And electric vehicles are, I believe, just approaching 1% of the vehicles in the Western world. Yeah, I, it reminds me of some blog post. I, I'm not going to know the link for it, but it was like it had a bunch of headlines on, you know, we're on the cusp of a revolution in batteries. You know, it's really close right now. 1905, 1915. <laughs> That's true. Well, you can find lots of those stories. And, and it was a revolution, by the way. The lead acid battery improvements at that time were really substantial. Uh, and that's why lead acid batteries ruled the electric storage market for a full century. And then nickel cadmium came along and it was you know, enough better that made, you know, um, Sony Walkman's possible, that kind of stuff, and portable mm-hmm. electronics. But the lithium revolution is enormously consequential. It's, and again, it's a chapter of my book because we wouldn't have portable uh, communications, but for the lithium battery. Mm-hmm. You know, the smartphone is the consequence of three unrelated revolutions. They weren't, they were unrelated contemporary, contemporaneous revolutions. And Steve Jobs had nothing to do with any of them, mm-hmm. but, but he had the brilliance, you know, to see how to fuse them into a product that worked. And of course, one of the revolutions was the lithium battery. You can store enough energy in small enough space. The other revolution, of course, is the, well, then the LCD screen. It's the, the planar tiny screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was, had nothing to do with the battery and nothing to do with microprocessors per se. And then the third revolution wasn't the microprocessor. That was already there beforehand. It was the chip-based radio, making radios powerful and tiny. Mm-hmm. Chip-sized radios were really, I used to do a lot of radio work and making radio that size. You go back over history, the first radios were pulled by horse and carriage and, you know, they weighed, they weighed a ton. And then the radios in World War II weighed 50 pounds and, you know, the GI, GI's radios. Uh, but making a radio the size of somebody's fingernail, pretty cool. You put those three things together with a computer chip, yeah, yeah boom, you got a smartphone. Overnight revolution took a mere 50 years <laughs> to mature. I think that there's a few fields that I, that I keep finding there's no way than other – like long-haul trucking, yeah. airplanes. So trucks that go over, say, 500 miles. Uh, probably, probably over 100 miles, but, but go ahead. Yeah. And then sure. – to to fly across an ocean, yeah. Heavy machinery, for, so for mining or for installation, yeah. Um, chip manufacture, yeah. That these things all require fossil fuels, and there's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no hope for any no. substitution for for them in those areas. There isn't. Well, you'd add to your list uh, fertilizer production. It's artificial fertilizer, yeah. Haberbosch glass production, uh-huh. natural gas is used for that. Steel production with coking coal. There's really no. Uh, path yet to steel production any other way. Most minerals and metal production uh, require uh, coal and gas. Uh, whole set, all, whole reams of the domains of polymers, including pharmaceuticals, requires feedstock, mm-hmm. uh, hydrocarbons, and the energy from uh, burning natural gas. So there's there's a constellation of things in the energy is used for that have no zero uh, commercially viable ways to replace hydrocarbons, but doesn't mean they can't ever happen. And of course, that's why you see all this discussion about using hydrogen 
so the thing you would replace natural gas with or coking coal is hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Well, hydrogen is not a it's not an energy form in, in any sense. It's it's the intermediary, right? You have to make it from something. So then you're going back up the food chain, and all the hydrogen we use today in the world is produced by reforming natural gas, taking the carbon out of the you know natu- as you know natural gas is carbon and hydrogen CH4. Mm-hmm. You strip the carbon out, you got hydrogen. Well, okay, how you do that? You use a, <laughs> use a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up the cheapest paths we know to make hydrogen to replace burning natural gas uh, are roughly 300% more expensive than just burning the natural gas. Mm-hmm. And we, there's no path to, to change that. There's no physical chemistry known yet. So the solution to all this stuff is, um, and I think you hinted at this early in our conversation, is new science. Uh, the problem with new science is that politicians want to be able to, they, they treat science like it's a cafeteria that I can order up this new science today by spending this much money. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. You, you, as you well know, you, you fund scientists, men and women of all kinds across all domains, and they, they come up with magic over time. And they don't do magical thinking. They invent magic. They really do. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Bill Gates used a great line on it. I love the line. I've stolen it with credit. We need miracles. <laughs> the two, he has two lines. We need miracles. And he's right. But by miracles, he didn't mean magic. He meant the kind of thing science does eventually, right? But it has, in his words, it's a great line. It has no predictor function. Mm-hmm. Engineering has a predictor function. If I, if I got the science, I know the, I, and you say, I want to build a faster, bigger airplane within the bounds of the physics. I can tell you roughly how long it'll take, what it'll cost. I can predict it with remarkable accuracy, mm-hmm. increasing accuracy with supercomputers now, because I can do digital twins and I can model things. But if you say, I want a room temperature superconductor, which as a physicist, I'm sure will happen one day. It just seems just seems right, right? It just seems that we'll we'll figure it out. But we have no predictor function to know when and who will do it. Because right now the only way you get a superconductor is to use very elaborate materials at very cold temperatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've made a lot of progress. We've gone from you know nearly near zero degrees Kelvin and we're now pushing into the almost liquid nitrogen domains mm-hmm. to you know to make superconductors. Pretty cool. No pun intended. But the predictor <laughs> function to get to an a room temperature superconductor that was cost effective by that, you know, that let's stipulate you have to have cost efficacy would really change the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, for people who are worried about it means you could store electricity as easily as to store oil. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a game changer because right now it's about 3000% more expensive to store electricity than store oil. Not 30%, but like 3000% more expensive mm-hmm. you know, per unit of energy stored. But if I can make it as cheap as storing oil, Okay. Solar panels, this is easy. I'll put solar panels in the Sahara Desert where it's sunny all the time, and mm-hmm. and then I don't have to build as many solar panels, and, it gets, and then I'll store it like in barrels of electricity and ship it around the world where I need it. it boy, talk about change the world. Uh, when will that happen? You know, there's no predictor function. Yeah. So I want to talk about I'm, – I'm, I'm going back and forth. I think – we're probably at about an hour now or maybe over. <laughs> and I want to talk about, so what, cause my, so, I mean, to me, I look at all the different, a lot of different routes that seem plausible, don't seem very plausible. Right. And it's easy to become despondent and say, well, I give up Yeah. and I'll just, and I did that for a while, but <laughs> the other big thing is, is you should have come to me for therapy. I would have <laughs> got you. No, I'm kidding. You did it the right way. You did research, thought about it. So let me go ahead. <laughs> well, the, the other, I mean, one of the big outcomes of, of going off grid uh, to the extent I am 
is learning resilience and learning how to live with less. Right. And right. it's been a much bigger change than I expected. And I've learned a lot more than I expected. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more feasible than people think, because I think we think there's a lot of things I thought about living more sustainably that I think I learned because people just said, oh, it must not be, it must be awful. No, no. And it hasn't been. No, you're, so you're, um, so you and Vaclav Smil are in the same camp, right? Though he's not optimistic that people will have the epiphany that you've had. And, and a lot of people, when they talk about whether they're happy in life, and the, the inverse of this is that that old adage that money doesn't buy happiness. Well, you know, what, what people say about that, you can say that when you have money, uh, but, you know, the, the stuff that you use for money, the things you acquire mm-hmm. and for comforts and conveniences, a lot, a lot of people like them. I mean, that's just that's human nature. But the inverse is you, as you know, and you've discovered, and is that is, is you sort of rein in your one's appetite for material things, because the material things are what creates a footprint in society mm-hmm. and in, in the ecosystem. Uh, so sometimes, for depending on how you think about your life, I mean, it's it's very satisfying. It, it, making life a little simpler is is very satisfying. Uh, having less chaos in your life, having less junk and stuff, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are all, you know, these are discoveries a lot of people have, and, and it works for them. And then they sort of, quote, downsize. They change their, their whole lifestyle. They get a smaller house. They sell the second car, so they have just one. They don't drive as much. They walk more. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the, you know, small personal things that one can do. And I have no objection to that. In fact, it's very appealing. I mean, it's not as if it's a, a way of living that's repugnant to me. Mm-hmm. But I keep coming back to two things on that sort of path. One is, you know, evangelizing people and convincing them to do that is different than telling you got no choice. You're going to be living in a hotter or colder house. You're going to not have beef. You're going to, or whatever the things that we're going to tell people, I can't drive as much. Mm-hmm. Mandating is very different than evangelizing. But the other part is that, as you all know, a billion people in the world can talk about that. Seven billion people can't, right? There's most of the world lives below the level that we would consider subsistence in our society and our economy. So even if Europe and the United States, every citizen decided to live a lifestyle to cut their energy use, pick a number in half, 60%, 70%, pick a big number, it would make no difference. Because if the 7 billion people in the world today can elevate themselves to 25% of our lifestyle, not equal, so we'll meet in the middle of 25%. Mm-hmm. The impact on the requirement for energy and materials in the world is more than triple what we already consume in Europe and North America now. So it's just arithmetic, back to the math. You can't, you cut by three quarters the billion, but you're going to increase 7 billion people by tenfold to get to the quarter because they live at two. 2% or 3% of our footprint in terms of energy materials usage. So that that's a non-trivial challenge. Those people in the rest of the world would, would like to have air conditioning occasionally, not all the time. They would like to have refrigeration for food. Mm-hmm. They would like to have a car amongst not one car per 20 or 30 people, but one car, say, per, per five would be nice, which is a 400% increase in cars, by the way, if they get to that. they would, We can go down the list of things they would be nice to have. They would like to have the kind of health care we enjoy in terms of clean water and sewage. And mm-hmm. our healthcare system is a is a monster energy producer, by the way. The pharmaceutical industry 
its energy consumption per unit of economic activity is it is industrial class. It's not a light footprint mm-hmm. to provide the kind of health that we like to have, the kind of health care we everybody wants. So that's again, my research is dictated not by saying, well, you shouldn't we shouldn't encourage people to live more with a lighter footprint. Is so are you we're telling the rest of the world that they they can't even aspire to the level that we're downsizing to, that they're, they're not. Well, I mean, wouldn't we, wouldn't we want to reduce anyway? I mean, why? Maybe, but that's, that's a different question. I don't, I don't fundamentally believe we need to. But just because if they have to increase, that doesn't mean we shouldn't decrease. I, I'm not, I don't see the connection. No, I I'm not saying that. Although the connection is this, the, the call on the ecosystem. So the, the problem that we're, if the goal of reducing is personal lifestyle, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's a different. If the goal to reduce is to reduce the net impact of humanity on the planet, on call and resources, then my only point is arithmetically, it's almost meaningless. It will not, because we're not going to reduce humanity's impact on the planet going forward. It's going to increase. Now, what we can do is mitigate the rate of increase. But my point on that is the, the magnitude of the mitigation that we will affect is a small, not irrelevant. I'm not denigrating that's relevant, but it won't it won't change the outcome. The outcome will still be we need lots, lots more energy. And we're not going to be able to supply what the world needs with solar panels and batteries. We're going to have to burn lots more hydrocarbons. If we want to get to a future where we have a lower hydrocarbon use, then we have to start being more serious about nuclear energy, which the world may now get serious about. And we have to get more serious about the being patient in the discovery of more foundational physics and physical chemistry, new kinds, new class of catalysts could unleash hydrogen in a way that would be phenomenologically profound, uh, equivalent to a room temperature superconductor in its, in its impact. Mm-hmm. We could really unlock the water bond, the water oxygen bond at a low energetic level, change the world because burning hydrogen is great. When you burn hydrogen, you get water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really pollutant. It's great. So if you can, with a low footprint, coax the hydrogen out of the water, you have an infinite supply of energy for all the combustion processes. So how are you going to get that? Well, that's going to come, again, from the no predictor function, expansion of basic science. And I think, again, I think that happens. I think we'll figure out how to tease nature to uh, to release that bond in a clever way that's not brute force. Right now, we do it by brute force. Mm -hmm. But that, and that's how we'll make the rest of, you know, the, but my point is that that won't require the world to live differently. That will, because even if we live differently, it won't change the outcome on the stated goals for the purpose of reducing our lifestyles. If the stated goal is personal lifestyle and self fulfillment, that's different. If the stated goal is I'm doing it because I'm reducing the footprint on the planet, my only point is you're kidding yourself that it's going to reduce humanity's overall footprint because you have to convince 7 billion people that they can't grow and get something that we we already have. And I don't think that's going to happen, absent a nuclear war. And that that would be, you know, beyond obviously horrific and not the outcome anybody wants. Would you be willing to continue this conversation in a second recording? And this would be up until now and then looking forward? Sure. I think the looking forward part is I mean, what the hell do we do about the future? Yeah. Which is why my book is about the near-term future, which is the next 20, next decade, the 2020s. And I didn't write about the longer-term future because people, you know, I mean, it's most people really don't care 
I mean, they should. What happens in 2040, 2050? I find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. But this is, a, this is a much harder predictor function. I think we have a good predictor function for the next decade. We have a really weak predictor function for the next 50 years. Be fun to talk about that. Absolutely. I would love to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to wrap up here, anything I didn't think to ask on what we've covered that's worth covering or anything you want to say directly to the listeners? Well, I would say in response to your observation um, early on and repeated a couple of times, I would hope that people will do what I try to do is I try to read what other people are saying about these issues that people feel emotionally strong about. So I would encourage people to read what I've been writing. And uh, if they find things that they find are what they believe are technically incorrect, but, you know, and I, I do try to maintain a tone that's measured. I really don't think it's productive to be snarky or insult people, you know, call people names. I just don't see that as productive. So you don't find that in my writings, I don't think. I don't think you find that. Occasionally, I lose patience with things that are really, really stupid. There was one where I, it's in, <laughs> in this universe. <laughs> yes. Well, that's me. But it was funny. I mean, I laughed when I read it. And, yeah. <laughs> I, that's where I'm losing patience with, you know, we'll go make solar energy better. I say, well, okay. I just said. I didn't think of that. <laughs> I didn't think I could do that. I, I've just stipulated that I'm going to assume perfect conversion with a weightless solar panel. I mean, I went through this calculation when I was thinking about this conversation I had with somebody. And you still can't solve the problem you're trying to solve in the universe we live in. And so I've you know, stipulated perfection. <laughs> you still can't solve your quote problem. Anyway, I, I would say it would be, it's useful when people read and say, I don't agree with this fact. You think you got your facts wrong. Okay, show me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm game. I'm all in. I want to know what, what I got wrong, where the research is wrong. There's another research source that says something that's actually different. Yeah, I wasn't reading it critically to challenge the numbers, but it, I mean, just they'll pass the smell test. It, it didn't look like, uh, yeah, I guess I, it would be interesting to try to read it critically and, and like challenge numbers, but I wasn't, that's what, not what I was reading it for. Well, I mean, that's, I, I do the same thing as you. I mean, I, I first read for smell test. If somebody, makes a statement that just seems this doesn't I mean I mean it's like a, come on this can't be true then I might dig deeper to find out if they've said something that I, I just completely missed it but if it doesn't pass the smell test it's you know why you know you just don't want to spend a lot of time on it my point was that if if people don't like the conclusion for example when I'm and I'm I'll be writing doing more research on this because it's an important question I think it's probably it's probably the case if we look at what will be done to build the electric cars for the next decade that we will increase CO2 emissions. The, mm-hmm. the net, in fact, will be to increase it. What will, in fact, happen? There won't be tailpipe emissions, but the CO2 emissions will go up for the world. I, I think if that's the probable outcome, that's important to, to know. And, and if it's a possible outcome, we, and we're you know, spending all this money to push EVs, we, we better think about how we're going to mitigate those effects as well. Otherwise, we're not getting what we pay for. And I feel like the CO2 is like one of many issues in the mining and going into the rainforest in Africa and the labor. It's like, these are all major. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Obviously, climate change is, is a big issue. Well, it's a big issue. And it's one of many. But it, it's a big issue you don't solve by increasing CO2 emissions with EVs. I mean, that's sort of yeah. being reductio ad absurdum. And the issue you're talking about is extraordinarily important. One of the professors I've come to know at Northwestern, her name is Jennifer Dunn. And if people haven't read her research, they should look her up and look at her published work. 
what she's looked at is the total fuel cycle issues. In particular, she looked at uh, biofuels early on mm-hmm. and look at the actual sort of systemic issues. But what she's been doing lately is looking at this labor and social impacts and going to the fields, into, into Congo, into Chile, into places to try to systematically both document and come up with a methodology to attach sort of a statistical methodology of what the the impact is. So if, when you mine cobalt and you affect the ecosystem, but you also affect people's jobs and the labor markets, there are ways to measure this in, you know, they're essentially uh, social science measurements. So they don't have the feature of hard sciences, but they're it's a science. Mm-hmm. And she's doing a lot of work in this, which is extraordinarily important because, you know, I, I guess I would say I've been asked her this question. I think she's probably uh, an advocate of the kind of energy path that is being promoted by this administration and, and in Europe. Mm-hmm. But she's not an advocate of doing it with the eyes wide open and thinking of better paths and better protections for the people being impacted. She is thinking that way. Oh, yeah, very much. She wants, she wants us to be aware of these impacts and mitigate them. And the mitigation tools are very limited if you do them. I mean, they're not, they're not zero. I mean, there are, Elon Musk has done a lot of work where he's, he's, he has said, particularly with his nickel mines, he had a harder time with his copper and cobalt, that he has set up uh, certifications that he wants with respect to their labor practices and their environmental practices at the mine sites and refineries mm-hmm. in order for him to be the buyer. And if you have enough economic muscle, you can, you can push suppliers around a bit. You can do it. Mm-hmm. And corporations can do these things, and Musk is doing some of it to his credit. But there's limits to what you can do, and you just want to be measuring it. You want to know what's going on. So, but we should talk more about because I think there are solutions to that. There are solutions to that. There's ways to mine. I mean, we have a labor shortage anyway. We're not going to have enough people to work in mines, and, and, and thank goodness we're going to have robots doing it. One of the biggest section of my book is about robotics, and by that I mean robots the way. We science fiction dweebs think of robots, you know, anthropomorphic robots, walking, crawling, moving assistance to human beings, doing dangerous work that we don't have enough people to do. That's no longer science fiction. We are on the cusp of this being very real and expanding rapidly. And it's one of these true discontinuities in markets that economists have a hard time predicting, which I think will have beneficial effects sooner than most people realize but not next year. I mean, <laughs> that's the problem. You know, policymakers want to make an impact next year. I think the impacts begin in this decade, which is very fast. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the coming decade or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, mining with less impact, uh, mining with fewer children, educating them instead to run and build the robots instead of carrying the, the cobalt with their hands mm-hmm. uh, in sacks. But the robots get, have to become cheaper than the kids. Right. I mean, the reason they use kids is because they're cheap. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact. It's a, it's a horrific fact, but it's true. It's true throughout history. But if I can make a robot that is, its net cost is cheaper than children, they'll use robots. Why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the path world's on right now, which is, I think, very, very exciting. Well, let's pick up here next time. I'd love to. Mark Mills, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.